Section 3 of On the Spirit and the Letter by Augustine of Hippo, translated by W.J. Sparrow Simpson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Here, then, let me bring this treatise to an end. Whether anything has been achieved by its voluminousness, I cannot tell. This does not refer to you, my dear Marcellinus, I refer to the mental condition of those for whom you desired me to write, those men who oppose, I will not say my opinion, but, to put it mildly and without naming him who spake through his apostles, who, undoubtedly, against the opinion of so great a man as the Apostle Paul, an opinion not merely stated in one solitary passage, but through a very earnest, vigorous, and acute controversy, preferred to maintain their own opinion, rather than to hear him beseeching, by the compassion of God, and urging through the grace of God which is given to him not to think more highly than they ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has given to each man a measure of faith. Consider then what the subject was which you propounded, and what this lengthy discussion has achieved. What disturbed you was the problem how it could be said that it was possible for a man to be without sin, by the divine assistance, if his own will did not fail, and yet that no one in this life has ever been, or is, or will be, of such perfect righteousness. My proposition in this treatise, which I formerly wrote to you, was, if I am asked whether it is possible for a man in this life to be without sin, I acknowledge that it is possible, by the grace of God and his own free will. Nor do I doubt that the man's free will is a product of God's grace, that is, it is one of the divine gifts, and... This is the case not as far as concerns the existence of the will only, but also as concerning its quality, that is, in its conversion and obedience to the divine commands. Accordingly, the grace of God not only reveals what ought to be performed, but also assists in order to render possible the idea which it has revealed. To you, however, the idea of a thing being possible yet without example seemed absurd. Hence rose the problems of this book, it became my business to show that a thing might be possible, although no example of it could be produced. In reply to this, I said at the beginning of this discourse certain passages out of the gospel and the law, such as the passing of a camel through a needle's eye, and a twelve thousand legions of angels, who might, had he willed it, have fought for Christ, and these nations of whom God said that he could have destroyed them at once before the face of his people, none of which things took place. To these might be added what is read in the Book of Wisdom, how many strange tortures God could have applied to the ungodly by using the creation which is obedient to his nod, though he did not apply them. Mention might also be made of the mountain which faith could cast into the sea, which yet I have never read or heard of as happening. But if any one were to say that any of these is impossible with God, you see how foolish he would be, and how he would be making assertions contrary to the mind of his scripture. Many other things of a similar nature may occur to one who reads or thinks, which we cannot deny to be within the range of divine power, although there exists no example of their occurrence. But since the objection might be made that these works are works of God, whereas to live righteously belongs to the works of man, I undertook to prove that this also is a work of God, and this I have accomplished in the present treatise at greater length, it may be, than was required. But as opposing the enemies of the grace of God, I seem to myself to have said too little. 
and I am never so pleased to speak as when passages of the sacred scripture supporting me occur in profusion, when my purpose is that he who glories should glory in the Lord, and that in all things we should give thanks to the Lord our God, lifting up our hearts to that place whence every good gift and every perfect gift proceeds from the Father of lights. Now if it were not the work of God because it is done by ourselves, or because we act through his gift, then neither is it the work of God that a mountain should be cast into the sea, because it was through the faith of men that our Lord affirmed that to be possible, and ascribed it to their work, saying, If ye shall have in you faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say to this mountain, Go hence, and be cast into the sea, and it will be done, and nothing will be impossible to you. Clearly, he says, To you, not to me or to my father. And yet no man will ever do this unless by God's gift and cooperation. We may see then how perfect righteousness is unexampled in mankind, and yet it is not impossible. For it would be realized if will adequate to so great an end were brought to bear on it. And that would be the case if nothing pertaining to righteousness were concealed from us, and if righteousness were so to delight the mind that all hindrances whatsoever of pleasure or of pain were conquered by this delight. And if this is not so, it is not due to impossibility, but to the judgment of God. For who is ignorant that man's knowledge is not within his power, and that it does not follow that a man will actually seek what he knows he ought to seek, unless it delights him as greatly as it deserves to be loved. But this is characteristic only of the healthy soul. It is, however, possible that someone may suppose that nothing is lacking to our knowledge of righteousness, since the Lord finishing and cutting short his word on earth, said that all the law and the prophets depend on two commandments. Nor did he keep silence about them, but declared them in the plainest of words, for he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. What can be truer than that the fulfilment of these is the complete fulfilment of righteousness? But let him who realizes this realize also that in many things we all offend, while we think that our actions are pleasing God, whom we love, or not displeasing him, and yet at a later time we are warned by his scriptures, or by some clear and unquestionable reason, and we learn that it did not please him, and repent, and pray him to forgive. Human life is full of such experiences. But whence came this imperfect knowledge of his will, unless from our imperfect knowledge of him? For now we see through a mirror in a riddle, but then face to face. Now can anyone venture to suppose that, when that state is reached which is described as knowing, even as I am also known, the love of God which shall exist in those who behold him will be no more than exists in those who believe in him now? or that in any way the one can bear comparison with the other. Now, if the greater the knowledge, the greater will be the love, we must believe that our capacity for fulfilling righteousness is defective in proportion to the defectiveness of our love. But a thing can be known or believed without being loved, but that which is neither known or believed cannot be loved. But if by believing the saints have been able to reach so great a love, than which, as the Lord himself declares, no greater in this life is possible, namely, to lay down their lives for the faith or for their brethren. Unquestionably, when we pass from this pilgrimage in which we now walk by faith and arrive at the actual vision which, not yet seeing, we hope for, and by patience we await, 
Our love will not only surpass what we here have on earth, but extend far beyond all that we can ask or think. And yet it is impossible for it to surpass a love with all the heart and all the soul and all the mind. There is nothing left in us which can be added to all that we possess, for if there were, then all that we possess would not be all. Accordingly, this command of righteousness, which orders us to love God with all the heart and all the soul and all the mind, upon which follows the second command concerning love of our neighbor, will be fulfilled in that life wherein we shall see face to face. But the command is given to us in the present life to warn us what we ought to ask by faith, whither to send forward our hope, and forgetting those things that are behind, reach forward to the things that are before. Therefore, as it appears to me, a man has much advanced in the acquisition of righteousness when he realizes by advancing how remote he is from the perfection of righteousness. But if one speak of a lesser righteousness adapted to the present life whereby the righteous lives by faith, although absent from the Lord and therefore walks by faith and not by sight, it is not absurd to say that even this righteousness ought to take heed not to sin, for indeed, if there cannot as yet be such a love of God as full and perfect knowledge would require, this is not to be instantly ascribed to our fault, for it is one thing not to have attained to perfect love, it is another to have no desire to attain to it. Wherefore, although a man loves God far less than he will be able to love him when he has seen, yet he ought at least to seek after nothing which is forbidden, just as in matters which concern our physical senses, the eye is not able to delight itself in any darkness, although it is not able to fix itself upon the most brilliant light. But let us now suppose a human soul so constituted in this corruptible body, that although it has not yet, by that supreme perfection of love towards God, absorbed and destroyed all movement of earthly passion, yet lives in that degree of lesser righteousness as not to consent by any inclination to work that evil passion. Now to that life already immortal belongs the precept, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy strength. But to this lower life let not sin reign in your mortal body to obey the desires thereof. To the former thou shalt not covet, to the latter go not after thy desires. To the former it belongs to seek nothing further than to persist in that perfection, to the latter that a man should work on what he has in hand, and hope for its perfection as his reward. So in that higher life the righteous man liveth without end, in that sight which he has desired in this life, while in the lower life the righteous man lives by faith in which he desires the higher life which is its certain end. On this understanding it will be seen if a man who lives by faith consents at times to any unlawful pleasure, not merely in committing dreadful crimes and wickednesses, but also even in lighter things, such as yielding his attention to something which ought not to be heard, or his tongue to something which ought not to be spoken, or if he so thinks something in his heart as to wish an evil pleasure were permissible, when he knows it by the commandment to be unlawful, even such consent as this belongs to sin, and would be carried into effect unless the penalty terrified. Have righteous persons of this description, living indeed by faith, no need to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? And do they prove that it is falsely written, in thy sight shall no man living be justified? And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. For there is no man that will not sin, and there is no righteous person on earth, who will do good and not sin. For not one of these testimonies speak concerning the past, 
that is, that the man has sinned, but of the future, that is, that he will sin, to say nothing of other passages where Holy Scripture declares this principle. But since it is impossible that these statements should be false, the inference is quite plain that whatever quality or extent we can ascribe to righteousness in the present life, there is no man in it who is absolutely free from sin. For every man must necessarily give, so that it may be given to him, and forgive that he may be forgiven. Whatever he may have of righteousness, he must not presume, as if it were derived from himself, since it comes from the grace of God, who makes men righteous. And he must still hunger and thirst after righteousness from him who is the living bread, and with whom is the fountain of life, who so works righteousness in his saints as they struggle in the temptation of this present life, that it is nevertheless what he freely gives to those that ask, and what he mercifully forgives to those who confess. But let these men discover, if they can, any one living under the burden of this corruption, in whom God has nothing to forgive. For except they confess that such a person has been enabled to become such as this, not through the instruction of a law given to him, but even through the infusion of the Spirit of grace, they involve themselves in the guilt of no ordinary crime, but of the very essence of ungodliness. It is true that if they receive in the right spirit those divine declarations, they cannot possible find such a person. But still, we must by no means maintain that the possibility does not exist for God, of so aiding the human will, that not only the righteousness which is of faith may be completely realized in a human being here on earth, but even that righteousness which is to be realized in eternity in the actual contemplation of God. Although if God were now to will in any person that this corruptible should put on incorruption, and bid him live on earth among dying men a life without dying, whereby all his ancient condition being obliterated, no law within his members should oppose the law of the mind, and he should know God everywhere present, even as the saints shall know him hereafter. Who will be so senseless as to dare to assert that with God this is impossible? Men indeed raise the question, why then does not God do it? But the objectors do not consider their human limitations. I know that neither impossibility nor iniquity exists with God. I know also that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I know also that to him to whom there was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet him, lest he should be exalted above measure, it was said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for strength is made perfect in weakness. There exists, therefore, something in the deep and secret judgments of God, whereby it comes to pass that every mouth of the righteous should be silenced in his praise, and should not be closed except in the praises of God. But what this something is, who is liable to search out and find out and know? For so unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, for who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has been his counsellor? Or who first gave to him, and it will be requited unto him again? For of him, and through him, and in him are all things, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. End of section 3 End of On the Spirit and the Letter by Augustine of Hippo Translated by W. J. Sparrow Simpson